Father, I pray that now you would give us an understanding of the words of Acts 9, 20 through 30. I pray, Lord, that you would encourage us through the word, challenge us through the word, convict us through the word, confront us through the word, comfort us through the word. I pray our hearts would be yielded. I pray, Father, that we would not try to fight with you or combat you, and that we would not try to argue with you or stand over your word and dictate its meaning according to our circumstances, our desires, our agenda, but that we would be submissive to what your word truly has to say, to its authority in our life, that we would recognize it to be the life and authority of our church, and that we would be surrendered, God, to what you speak and to what you say, to your words, to your revelation. And pray this now in Jesus' name, amen. As we wrap up another year of deacons serving our church, I want to thank those men who have served in this past year. They've done a wonderful job. Uh, October is when our deacon year resets. We have a vote right after this service today where we will vote on uh, deacons for the upcoming year. And uh, so if you are a church member here, if you would be willing to stay just for about five minutes after the service, it will not take long. Uh, We'll even do it before we go get the kids. It will not take long. Um, And we'll uh, close up with our deacon uh, election. But thank you so much to those men who have served uh, in this last year. Acts 9 is where we're going to be. Acts 9 verses 20 through 30. Within the first few hours of a butterfly's transformation, there are distinct changes that take place in the insect. Its wings expand in size, as you can imagine, and then they get hard and they grow stiff so that they can fly. The butterfly develops a long nose to feed on nectar with, and its entire digestive system changes to adapt to its new diet. This is all inside of God's brilliant design. The colors on the wings start to change and become those vibrant colors that you're so used to seeing on a butterfly. And then the butterfly will take off and will spend a brief amount of time knocking around in its new environment, teaching itself how to stay flying. And all of this amazingly takes place in the first few hours of a butterfly's metamorphosis. They don't live lives that are that long, so they've got to get to it. As Christians, we don't undergo a metamorphosis. We undergo something that's even more dramatic. We undergo a resurrection, a conversion from death to life. We are not living creatures who undergo a facelift, but instead we are dead creatures, spiritually, who are given a whole new life. There is simply no doubt when it comes to whether or not a butterfly has undergone its change, it's evident in the colors, in the flight, in the wingspan, and how it eats, it is irrefutable. And in the same way, there should be no doubt when a life has been resurrected. It's evident in what it proclaims. It is evident in how it perseveres. It is evident in what it produces. It's evident in what it preaches. It is evident when it is under pressure. It is evident in what it propagates. When a life has been resurrected, it's irrefutable. And as we look at the early days of Saul's newborn life this morning, we will see just that. We will see an irrefutably resurrected life 
And it gives us an opportunity to examine ours. So we pick the passage up where we left off a week ago. Saul was on his way to Damascus where he was going to gather up more Christians, more of those belonging to the way, more brothers and sisters, and toss them into prison. But on his way there, he is blinded by a light from heaven, and he goes from being someone who hates Christianity, makes war against it, to being a brother in the Lord. goes from being filled with hatred to being filled with the Holy Spirit. His life is resurrected. He was dead. Now he is living. The Spirit of God has brought dead Saul to life. And this morning you'll see him being bold in the synagogue in Damascus, stirring up trouble in Jerusalem. You see his resurrected life on display. As I read the passage, it's helpful for us to know this is not a string of events that happens over a matter of days or even months. Acts 9, 19-30 covers a span of a few years. And we know that because of what Paul writes to the Galatians. He says, Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. And so we have a passage this morning where Luke as a historian is telling us of Saul's initial visit to Damascus, the three years he spent in Arabia, his escape from Damascus, as well as his first visit to Jerusalem as a believer. So Acts 9, starting in verse 19. And taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, is, it, is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him, but his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. When he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who had spoke to him. At how And how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists. But they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. We start with Saul in Damascus, and he arrives there with wildly different aims than he had when he had started his journey. He was supposed to come and round up Christians for prison, but by the time he arrives, he is a Christian. It's amazing. And he wastes no time to get going in terms of ministry. He goes right to the synagogue where he's supposed to be hunting for Christians, and he starts proclaiming, he starts preaching and saying that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. You see Christians like Ananias 
And like the brothers in Jerusalem, surprised by Saul's conversion in Acts 9. Surprised to the point of still fearing him. But you can't forget that the Jewish people at the synagogues would have been just as surprised to hear about this man's conversion. They knew Saul. They knew who he was. He was the hatchet man. He was the one who had earned a reputation for being a hard-nosed persecutor of any person who was preaching the name of Jesus. He was a renowned terrorist in the region of Judea. A bully and a brute. A merciless man who loathed the proclamation of the good news of Jesus Christ. And yet, he strolls into the synagogue in Damascus. And he says, Jesus is God's Son. And they all go, excuse me? (laughs) Come again? They're amazed by this. They wonder, is this not the guy who was causing a storm in Jerusalem by, by taking people who belong to this movement and harming them? Wasn't he on his way here, authorized to capture more of them, bring them bound to prison? It's not the only time we see Saul preaching in Acts 9. He does it in the synagogue in Damascus. It happens again when he arrives in Jerusalem. Part of the reason he is accepted ultimately by the church there is because Barnabas is like, hey, this guy's a proclaimer of the Lord Jesus. He was saved by him. He's been changed by him. And he is proclaiming Jesus as the Son of God. And then in verse 28, you see he's going in and out of the company of the church there and he's preaching Christ boldly. This is the same community that he was terrorizing. Understand that. It's the same group of people. How many of their friends and family did he carry off to jail? How many of them knew Stephen? And they remember that this is the guy who held the coats of the men who murdered him. How many of them were personally persecuted by Saul? And yet now they accept him in part because he proves his conversion in preaching boldly. And so our first point this morning is this. The irrefutably resurrected life preaches and proclaims. The irrefutably resurrected life preaches and proclaims. The Christ-centered preaching and proclaiming we're seeing from Saul here in these verses in Acts 9 is going to be a hallmark of what his ministry becomes as the Apostle Paul. When he writes in 1 Corinthians 2, He says, and I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except what? Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That was the content of Paul's ministry. His ministry was not built on his oratory skills. His ministry was not built on his own wisdom. His ministry is focused on Jesus Christ and his saving work. It's not about Saul. It's not about Paul. It is about Jesus. Once the Lord confronted him on the Damascus road, opened his eyes to the glory of Christ, he becomes focused on proclaiming this glorious Christ as the Son of God. You see the immediate effect it had upon him. He goes to Damascus. Luke says that he immediately proclaimed Jesus there. Immediately is proclaiming him in the synagogues, saying that he is the Son of God. It's a reactionary reaction. Or a reactionary action, we should say. It's reflexive. 
Jesus has saved me. Jesus has given me spiritual sight. The mystery of the new covenant has been revealed to me. What can I do but go out there and tell everybody? Thomas Watson says, he who had been a persecutor before now became a preacher. And that's exactly right. Before, he was passionate about persecuting. Now, he is absolutely convinced after meeting the Lord Jesus on the Damascus Road that he is God and that he is Lord. And so now he is preaching just that. He goes to his own people first. This is his habit that when he goes into a city or a town, we'll see this throughout the book of Acts, he starts with the synagogue. He evangelizes there first. In Romans 1.16, he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greeks. So before he goes to the Greeks, he goes to the Jews at the synagogues. Paul had a great love for his people. He loved the Hebrews. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews and he loved Hebrews. In Romans 9.3, he says, For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. I, I, I would cut myself off eternally if I knew that all of my Jewish people, all the other Hebrews, could, could go to heaven. If they, they could all know Jesus Christ, know God through His Son, and, and be in glory with Him, He would be cut off. And so that's the love that takes him immediately to the synagogue to preach and to proclaim Christ. And as, as amazed as the people are there, those who wish to contend with him just can't do it. Verse 22 says that the Jews who lived in Damascus were confounded as Saul proved that Jesus was the Christ. He contends with them and he proves to them that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. Luke does not tell us how he goes about proving it, but we can assume that he's doing it with the Scriptures. That's how Stephen proved it, right? In Acts 6 and 7, in Stephen's big speech that he gives, Stephen proves it with the Scriptures. That's how Philip proved it with the Ethiopian eunuch. He explained to him from the Scriptures how Jesus was the Christ. Certainly, it's how Paul proves it in his 13 New Testament letters. He uses the Scriptures to show that Jesus is the Son of God. He's a man who regularly quotes the Scriptures in order to prove the identity of Christ in his letters. And so, we can assume that as he is, as he is contending in the synagogues for Jesus being the Son of God, he is doing it not in his own wisdom, not in his own knowledge, but he's doing it with the Scriptures, with the Word of God. Verse 23 says that when many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. People debate on the timeline of the few years after Saul's conversion. But here's my best understanding of what's going on and what the many days are that are being referred to uh, in verse 23 by Luke. Saul is saved. We saw that last week. Goes to Ananias, gets his sight back, gets baptized, starts eating food, right? In verse 19, he takes food, he's being strengthened. Then he goes right to the synagogue and unleashes the gospel. Not everybody thinks that. 
Some people think that he goes away into Arabia and then he preaches there. But to me, the most natural reading of verse 20 is that he takes food, he was strengthened, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus. Like, he, he gets strong, and as soon as he is strong enough to proclaim Jesus, he goes and he does it. He unleashes the gospel. Then he spends three years in Arabia and Damascus. To say he spends three years in Arabia and Damascus is like me saying he spent three years in Yorktown and Virginia, right? Arabia is Damascus. Damascus is Arabia. Damascus is a part of Arabia in the same way that Yorktown is a part of Virginia. Day by day, he is doing ministry in this region. He's getting strong. You see that in verse 22. It says that Saul increased all the more in strength. That's not physical strength. He got that from the food in verse 19. That's talking about spiritual strength. He's being fortified. He's being edified in his inner man, being built up in Christ. And he's getting his ministry reps in this region, being a missionary, going around, doing the work, preaching Christ. And as he does this, he gains a reputation. As he does this ministry in Arabia and Damascus, the Jews begin to plot to kill him just like they did with the Lord Jesus. According to Paul in 2 Corinthians, they even had the governor guarding the gate. So when Luke says many days has passed, I believe he's talking about the period of three years that Paul is referring to in Galatians 1. And at the end of that period of three years, with this great reputation he's gained as a powerful missionary and a minister, with people wanting to kill him, he now needs to get out of Arabia. But the way out, through the gates of Damascus, it's not really an option because they're being watched day and night, therefore his disciples lower him in a basket through an opening in the wall, which he talks about in verse 24. It's all very Indiana Jones, isn't it? After this, he goes to Jerusalem, and he rinses and repeats. He preaches boldly in Jerusalem. He's disputing against the Hellenists there. The Hellenists would be the Greek-speaking Jews, very similar probably to the Cyrenians and the Alexandrians and the Cilicians who were giving Stephen a hard time in Acts 6. The bottom line is you can see that the entire aim of Paul's life of Saul's life, is the proclamation of the Gospel. It is clear, wherever he goes, the preaching of the good news of Jesus the Messiah is his priority. Now, I know a lot of you might be thinking, well, of course it is. He's Saul. He's special. He's one of the most prominent people in the history of the world. One of the most prominent people in God's redemption history. And that's true. We can't hide from that. There is a sense in which you're reading this and you're reading the, the story of the beginning of the ministry of a very special man. He's special in the role that he would play. He's special in that he would pen half of the New Testament. Maybe more, depending on your opinion on the book of Hebrews. He's special because of those mission journeys that he's going to go on. He's special because he is the apostle abnormally born, set apart to go to the Gentiles. Yes, Saul is special. He is different. There's no doubt. But in another sense, he's not. He's just like you and me. He's a human being that shares in the same baptism that we do. 
He's a human being who has the same spirit dwelling in him that we have dwelling in us. A human being who shares in the same Lord that we share in. In another sense, he's not special. He's just a Christian with a resurrected life. Just like you. And part of the way that it was obvious that this man was irrefutably resurrected in the first few years of his Christian life is that everywhere he went, he was proclaiming that Jesus is the Son of God. And this is the way that it should be with us. The content of our lives, the content of our walk as Christian people should be the proclamation of Jesus Christ. It's what we should know among our neighbors. It's what we should know among our public schools. It's what we should know uh, at our workplace. It's what we should know in our homes with our children. It is Jesus Christ and Him crucified. It's what we should be proclaiming. We all know that every life in this room is proclaiming something. We're all saying something with the clothes we wear, with the words we say, with the things that we do, the actions that we take, what we post out there on social media, what we text to our friends, we are all proclaiming something, likely a few things. But what is the primary theme of your life? The primary theme of Saul's life upon conversion was Jesus Christ and Him crucified. What is the primary theme of your life? The hymn writer William Cowper wrote, Redeeming love has been my theme, and there is a fountain, and shall be till I die. Redeeming love has been my theme, and shall be till I die. And so it should be with every resurrected life. The love that has redeemed you should be your theme. It should be the content you live to convey. The message you live to magnify. The passage that you preach again and again and again. The Gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus and Him crucified. This is what an irrefutably resurrected life does. Let's continue on. Let's think a bit about how Saul deals with the pressure that comes against him in this passage. Almost immediately, there's life and death persecution for Saul. His first phase of ministry in the Arabian kingdom and in Damascus, it ends with people just wanting to kill him. When many days had passed, verse 23, the Jews plotted to kill him. And then once again he goes to Jerusalem, the Greek influence and Greek-speaking Jews, the Hellenists, they want to kill him because he disputes with them. And so he doesn't stay there long, he's going to retreat to Tarsus for safety. But this sort of suffering becomes a trademark, becomes a hallmark of his ministry, of his life as the apostle to the Gentiles. You remember what the Lord said to Ananias? When Ananias understandably is like, Lord, I don't know if I want to go to this guy because I fear I'm going to meet a man who wants to kill me. And so I don't know. And the Lord says, no, no, go to him, go to him. I've told him already in a vision that you're going to come to him. And then he tells Ananias, For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. That suffering comes about right away in Saul's life. He experiences opposition and discomfort for the gospel's sake from the very beginning of his ministry all the way to the end of it because church history tells us he got his head cut off in Rome. So from the beginning to the end, 
The pressure of persecution is hot on his neck. As we have seen persecution in Acts, I've often referred to the words that he wrote to Timothy, that Paul wrote to his true son in the faith. He said to Timothy, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Upon salvation, he wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus. He's getting persecuted. He didn't just write those words in, in, a, in a kind of abstract way for somebody else. He wrote them autobiographically. He experienced that. He wrote to Timothy as a man who had experienced a persecuted godly life. One of the best descriptions we have of how much Paul suffered for the name of Christ can be found in 2 Corinthians 11 as he is defending himself by those who called themselves super apostles, uh, those who said that Paul wasn't a real apostle. And one of the reasons they said he wasn't a real apostle is that he suffered too much. Oh, he suffers too much for Jesus to be an apostle for Jesus. And he writes to the Corinthians and he says, the thing that they say disqualifies me is one of the very things that qualifies me. And so he gets put in a position where he kind of has to boast about his suffering. He doesn't want to do it. He says he's like a madman as he's talking. He feels like he's crazy as he's boasting about these things. But indeed, he, he boasts of his suffering to show just how much he has suffered for the name of Christ as an apostle. He says, are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I am talking like a madman, with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people. Danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Despite all that, I'm still pastoring here. That's what he's saying there. Who is weak and I'm not weak? Who is made to fall and I am not, and I am not indignant? Who, who is suffering in the church and I don't feel it as a pastor? Who is falling in the church and I am not indignant as a pastor? That's what he's saying. If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. These other apostles, they boast of the things that show their strength. He's like, no, I'll boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, He who is bless, blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. And now listen, this pertains directly to our text this morning. At Damascus, the governor under King Aretas was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me. But I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. It's quite a resume. It's quite a resume of suffering. Like nobody is going to beat Paul in the, in the suffering Olympics. It makes me blush to think how little opposition it takes for me to want to back down or to want to run away when you consider what he went through. You read what he went through and you realize that, that you might need a stronger stomach. 
But more importantly, when you see the full breadth and the full weight of the suffering that he endured, it speaks to a radically changed man. And so, number two this morning, the irrefutably resurrected life perseveres under pressure. To really grasp Paul's willingness to suffer, you've got to understand the nature of Christian conversion. And to do that, we turn to our Lord's parable of the soils. And he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground, where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil, but when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Later in Matthew 13, Jesus explains the parable, and he says that the hard path represents the hearts of those who hear the gospel, they don't understand it, Satan snatches away what has been sown in preaching. In Matthew 13, 22, he says the thorny ground represents the hearts of those who hear the gospel, but they love the world and they love sin too much to follow through on trusting Christ and abandoning all other trusts. It's the deceitfulness of the world's riches that chokes out the word. But then there's the rocky ground, which is particularly interesting to us when we are talking about Saul's conversion. The rocky ground represents those who hear the gospel, receive it with joy immediately. Not meaning that they are saved, they don't have a saving faith, they just in their minds assent to what they're hearing. They go, yeah, yeah, this sounds right. Jesus is God, I'm a sinner. Jesus is sent to die for my sin, repent, put trust in Him, okay. And so they receive it intellectually, mentally, they agree to it. But when suffering comes, they turn back. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word, immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. So They've intellectually accepted that God is a creator and that man fell away from God by sinning and God has sent His Son Jesus to save people from sin and that He died on the cross and rose again. There's agreement about all those things. In fact, there may be enough of an association with the church to even be persecuted for agreeing with some of those things. But when that persecution arrives or when suffering arises, The rocky ground hearer goes, I didn't sign up for this. I wanted Jesus to take my problems away. But believing in Jesus is adding to my problems. Now I'm getting beaten on by the world because of my belief in Him. Now I'm suffering for this message. It it has actually multiplied the problems I have in my life. It's compounded them. And so the person does not persevere. They cease their association with Christ. So that whatever discomfort they've started to feel because of their association with Him, it'll go away. If you've been around church for any amount of time, just a couple of years in the church, you know this story, you have seen it. You have seen pressure come into somebody's life and they wilt and they say, I'm out. I'm not doing this. I don't have to. He's not my Lord. It's just a religion that I started to flirt with. 
I don't have to suffer, so I'm not going to suffer. I'm out. There's another ground. There's a good ground Jesus tells us about. He says, And as for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it in a saving way. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. The only soil in the parable that represents converted believers is the fourth soil because to varying degrees it produces fruit. The heart that wilts under pressure says, I don't have to do this, and they walk away. The converted heart under pressure says, He is my Lord, I have to do this. I don't have a choice. I must be obedient. And so they walk with Jesus wherever He may lead, even if in His service they have to find pleasure and pain. The reason there is such a difference, a stark difference in the lives of unconverted and converted people or converted and falsely converted people when it comes to suffering is that unconverted people have pleasure as their priority. They have their own pleasure as their priority. When the root of pride in the dead sinful heart has not been removed by the regenerating Spirit of God and the saving grace of God, what a person's always going to do is seek their own pleasure. Now they might do good works or they might do evil works. But in all their works, their own pleasure will be the end of the desires that they act upon. Even acts of self-preservation will be acts that prioritize their own pleasure. So, just for example, you might say to me, Nuh-uh, that's not true. I go to work, but I hate my job. That's not pleasure. It's not my priority there. Yes, it is. Because you like a paycheck. And you like the pleasure that the paycheck provides. Being able to have food, being able to pay bills, being able to have clothes, and maybe even be able to do a little something fun on the side, right? So you may hate your job, but you set that hatred aside and you do it because the priority of your pleasure supersedes it. You say, well, we've got to get that paycheck. But when a life is irrefutably resurrected, its priorities are altered, they're changed, and one's pleasure is no longer the pace-setter for, desi- uh, for uh, desires and for decisions. Because now the root of pride is removed, and by God's grace, a new transformed heart is in place, and what is most important to the new transformed heart is not your own pleasure, but it's the pleasure of God. God being pleased through your life becomes your priority. Paul, as he writes to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 9, says, So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to do what? To please Him. Wherever we're at, we just want to please the Lord. This is the aim of a resurrected life, the aim of a resurrected heart, to please the Lord. And that aim in 2 Corinthians 5 cannot be disconnected from the resume of suffering Paul has in 2 Corinthians 11. It is the aim from chapter 5 that leads to the array of suffering in chapter 11. He's willing to go through what he goes through in chapter 11 to endure that resume of suffering because the aim of his life is to please God no matter what. 
So what's your priority? What is the priority of your life? I want to encourage you and say that I see as your pastor, I get a bird's eye view in the way that others don't for some of you and how you're suffering. How you're suffering for the name of Jesus in disease, in diagnosis, how you're suffering for the name of Jesus at work. I get to see it. And so many of our people do such a great job of prioritizing the pleasure of Christ. And that is so important because John Piper says our obedience is God's pleasure when it proves that God is our treasure. You want to show the world that God is your treasure? Then make pleasing Him the number one aim of your life. When you are willing to seek the pleasure of God, even to your own detriment, that will show people that you treasure Him above all else. It will show that your life is irrefutably resurrected. Press on in endurance. Keep persevering. Let's head toward our our conclusion here by looking at our final teaching point. It comes from half a sentence in verse 22 and one word in verse 25. Verse 22, but Saul increased all the more in strength. And then verse 25, as he's being let down through uh, an opening in the wall in a basket, it says that he is taken by night by who? His disciples. His disciples. And that's the one word I want us to focus on from verse 25. If this lowering down in the basket does indeed occur three years after his conversion, it means that just three years after coming to Christ, Paul has a group of men following him. To the point that others like Luke would look at him and go, those are Paul's boys. Those are Saul's men. Those are the men that run around with him. He has personally increased in spiritual strength. You see that in verse 22. And he is discipling men. We see that as well. Conversion, preaching and growth, discipleship. He wastes no time. And his lack of time wasting should not be a surprise. We've just established that pleasing God through obedience is the total aim of this resurrected life now. And if that's the case, then upon conversion, what is he going to be concerned with? He's going to be concerned with the overarching commission the Lord has given to his entire church. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So Saul gets saved and Saul gets working. Number three, the irrefutably resurrected life propagates and produces. He doesn't take 10 years to get his feet under him, not even five. Within three years of conversion, he has discipled men. Now again, I recognize special guy, special background, special place in redemption history. All that is true. Doesn't change the fact that we should be discipling others the way that Paul is. There's a time in every one of our lives as Christians where we are newborn spiritual babies. And when you're a baby, you need a help doing the most basic things, don't you? When you're a baby, you need help discerning what to eat and what not to eat. 
That's a fruit snack. You can eat that. That's a Lego. You can't, right? Like your kids two and three, you're still having those discussions about discerning, okay, that's on the floor. We're not eating random things off the floor. We're not eating random pennies off of the Target parking lot. You know, we're going to leave that there. And we eat vegetables and meat and candy and these, these sorts of things, right? You're teaching them that discernment. When you're a baby, you're dependent on others. There has to be a time where you grow out of babyhood. If, if my son Beckett had the full ability, or my son Everett had the full ability, either one of these kids, to, to be a, you know, an 11-year-old, a 9-year-old, but you came over to my house and he was in diapers, didn't need to be, but he's in diapers, yeah, we just never really got to it, you know? He's just eating stuff off the floor, crawling around, he's not talking to you. He could, but it's not just because we didn't teach him. You'd be like, what's going on here? Like, you, you guys got to, you got to, you got to teach them the things, right? You got to raise them up. But we will leave people in spiritual babyhood in the church, won't we? There's people still crawling around on the floor. They have no clue what to eat and what not to eat. They'll go down to the Christian bookstore. I guess they don't really exist anymore. They'll hop on Amazon. If it's called Christian, they'll buy it. It comes out in the movie theater. It's called Christian. They'll see it. There's got to be a time where we go from babyhood into adolescence and then into adulthood and then we turn to somebody and we say, imitate me as I imitate Christ. There's got to be a time in which the resurrected life grows up and then helps others to grow. This is what we see Saul doing. This is why he has a group of disciples. Bobby Jameson says discipleship means growing as followers of Jesus. So that's one half of it, right? You need to grow. And helping others to do the same. As American Christians, we love what we see in verse 22. He increased in strength. He's fortified in the inner man. We're all about that. Give us a good Bible study. Give us a good book. We love a stonking good message from the pulpit, don't we? We will eat and we will eat and we will eat at the table of knowledge. But when it comes to verse 25, it's a struggle. And that is because many of us have been raised up in a church culture where consumption is valued over cultivation. We know how to run programs, but we don't know how to build people. We know how to run events, but we don't know how to train people. We know how to utilize people, but we don't know how to grow them. It's not that American evangelicals are lazy. I just think there's only a certain type of work we've really been shown how to do. We've been shown how to use our hands in busyness in the church, but we haven't been shown how to use our hearts to build up one another in Christ. So that we can look at people and say, imitate me as I imitate Jesus. I don't want to leave you feeling guilty about this. I don't want to leave you leaving here today going, well, I've never discipled anybody. I guess I'm going to hell. I've never discipled anybody, so I guess I'm an immature baby Christian myself, and I don't want to say anything to anybody because I don't want anybody to know that, so I just will go my whole life not being discipled or discipling anyone. Well, that's not the answer. I just want you to consider this morning, who are the godly examples you follow in the local church? Just think about that. Who do you look to and you say, ah, oh, man, if I could just be more like them. Those are the people that you want to imitate. 
You already do it. You looked at them and you're like, I want to imitate them as they imitate Jesus. Well, go be official about it. Go to them, talk to them, and ask them if they will disciple you. If you are not crawling around on the floor this morning, you are a spiritual adult, well, the question for you is, who needs to be taught around you? Look around you. Who needs to be taught? And if you're going, I don't even know where to begin with this, I'm going to give you a place to begin, and that is Sunday school. Are you going to Sunday school? That's the place to start because that is the gateway to discipleship here in our church. That's where you will meet those more mature than you who can feed into your life and you'll meet those who are less mature than you and you can feed into their life. This is where discipleship relationships begin. But I want you to think through these things when it comes to discipleship. To really think through it because that is the point of it all. It's what Jesus put the church here to do, to make disciples for His glory. This is the good work He has laid out for us as His workmanship. If we ignore and dismiss disciple-making, we're dismissing the Great Commission. And we can't say we have an irrefutably resurrected life if we dismiss that. I'll invite the band to come back up and lead us in our final song, as they do I want to tell you that in 1738, John Wesley, the father of the Methodist Church, was a frustrated, unconverted man sitting at a church service on Aldersgate Street in London, May 24th, 1738. Frustrated because he wanted to be saved, but he just felt like he didn't know God. He actually had gone on a mission trip with his brother all the way here to America he went to Georgia came back and he said we took Christ to America but who's going to take Christ to me well that night May 24 1738 at about 8 45 p.m. he was sitting listening to some brother stand up and preach through the book of Romans and he said he felt his heart strangely warmed and he was a Christian And his friends grabbed him because his brother Charles had just recently been converted himself. They grabbed him, they brought him to Charles, and they said, you know, tell him. And he said, brother, I believe. So what did John Wesley do with his irrefutably resurrected life? Well, he immediately went and started preaching in fields to coal miners, to common folk. Not long after he got going, he received very strong opposition. So what did he do? started traveling all over Britain and preaching even more. By the end of his life, he had rode over 250,000 miles on horseback and he had preached over 40,000 sermons. He had a host of disciples in his wake. 120,000 people at the time of John Wesley's death were involved in his missionary societies. Trained up lay pastors who would carry on the work after he was gone. Wesley was like Saul. As a butterfly emerging from the cocoon, spreading its wings, displaying its colors, there is simply no doubting that God's hand had altered Saul. There was no doubting that God's hand had altered John Wesley. The transformation was obvious to anybody who knew these men. Preaching and proclaiming, persevering under pressure, propagating and producing. This is the irrefutably resurrected life. And my question to you is, is it yours by faith? Has God given it to you by His grace? 
If you are unsure, then I urge you to come before Him and confess your sin and to trust in Christ for salvation from God's wrath. Ask Him to take your old dead life and to raise it up. And when He does, there will be no doubt for the people who know you best. The entire aim of your life will change. It will be irrefutable. Lord, thank You for Your Word. I pray that you would bless us, God, as we now sing to you. I pray that we would take our irrefutably resurrected lives and we would lift them up in song to you, God, and that you would hear our voices coming together like trumpets, like a chorus of trumpets, shouting, God, sounding out your praises. For those that do not know you, Lord, they look at their lives and they say, I'm much, much more like the soil that, that, that ran, I, I ran away because the heat of persecution got too, too hot, suffering got too hot, the, the, the love of this world and, and the riches of this world, it's choking the word out. God, if there are lost people here, they do not know you, they know in their heart right now, if they were to die and face you in judgment, and they would be eternally separated from you and it would be totally just because they are guilty in their sin and I pray they would repent today they would put their trust in you today and you would raise them up from the dead and you would get glory from their lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.